episode of the Discomfort Zone podcast. The idea to cross the ape man with the Anunnaki. Slaves work animals created for one person to unburden the gods. Hello everyone and thank you very much for joining me for another episode. Let's get started. Now I wanted to actually start off with a quick uh, recap what we've been talking about because we've been going through quite a lot of history pretty quickly, a lot of unusual names, hard to remember, a lot's been going on. So I think it'll be a good idea if we just have a quick uh, recap. Evenings Fire Revised Sociology, great to have you as always. So actually when if you actually ask me about it seriously um most of the rulers most of the names are unimportant it certainly helps if we are researching it if sitchin wants to discover the truth um, of what happened and cross-reference different um, sources then the names become increasingly important for the identification and we'll get into that a bit more later in the episode but for our intents and purposes, since we are basically following the narrative that Sitchin has already done the hard work of researching, we don't need to remember which ruler ruled from how many years and what you know uh, the names of his sons were. So let's have a quick recap of what has been going on, generally speaking. And if we're going to look at the whole span of the timeline that we've gone through from the beginning, we can say that there was a... A sort of progression in the Anunnaki's attitude towards humans and that progression started um, well before the humans were born but let's say were created but let's say from when they were created um, being treated as work animals being slowly raised in the Anunnaki's perceptions to be more and more capable and indeed physiologically and biologically becoming more capable and this progression continued until let's say more or less the second generation of gods whom if you'll remember we spoke less of in the beginning they were younger and they were less involved um, for example the gods uh, Inanna and Enki's son Marduk, Dumuzi, um, Enlil's sons, uh, Ninurta all of these different characters that we've heard of more become much more prominent in the following years and as we spoke about this is again the sort of uh, change of the guard, the wars between the older gods and the newer uh, gods. Um, and this, again, shifts the relationship between the Anunnaki and people, and a few big changes happen. Firstly, we start seeing the worship of gods, um, the actual priest uh, class and the kings who were anointed as representatives of the gods, as spiritual leaders um, and with this came both a closer relationship and in fact in many instances we see um, uh, even a sexual relationship between people and gods uh, the offspring being demigods and uh, various characters that we've heard of and also um, sort of a, a higher level of I would say uh, using or you know manipulating um, really uh, um, enslaving humanity to a much more complex level of consciousness. If it was before much simpler and really uh, no more complicated than slaves, now with the priest um, caste 
and with the interrelationships between the people, we can see that there's a change. And indeed, this leads to more infighting, more uh, division between humanity, um, between the different peoples and the different cultures who are somewhat turned against each other by these various gods who are attempting to seize control and to rule over everyone. And this brought us to really what I've been building up from the beginning, which is the empire um, of Sumer, the, the land Sumer. And this was the first um, establishment when the Anunnaki came. And it was again the first human establishment after the deluge, when everything was destroyed and had to be rebuilt. As we spoke about in the geography again, there was this um, decision to maintain and keep the same geographical locations and the same uh, calculations that were put into the first time, obviously to prevent further work if it was necessary, but to maintain the control over the Mesopotamia and the whole area to be in Sumer and its various cities. Um, now, having said that, excuse me, having said that, inside the kingdom of Sumer, the empire, the cities of control, the capitals, were changing and it's, it uh, went through different uh, cities throughout the ages and I've purposefully um, not included many of the names of the different cities, although we've heard of them. Ur is the most famous one. Um, but it's not crucial to us which cities got the, uh, you know, the rulership in which years. It's more important to remember that this was a time of uh, turmoil and of chaos. And that was interspersed with periods of peace, normally a little uh, shorter, although hundreds of years, which, uh, which does sound like a lot, but in the grand scheme of things, more of the time was spent fighting and conducting wars and indeed expansion of empires um, and an, an attempt to attain peace by conquering the enemies and thwarting the uh, uprising. So that's the ancient world that we're really dealing with. And it's like, I think it's, uh, it is known and obvious, but again, it's important to sort of try and grasp the period that we're talking about it's very much I think what we sort of to some extent picture and imagine when we think about these ancient times of Babylon where everyone was just warring all the time you were either enlisted or you were farming to sustain the soldiers and it was a it was a pretty bleak and difficult time I think in uh, in our human history so that's pretty much the situation at large in Mesopotamia. Again, a quick division. Uh, the Mesopotamian area is really Enlil's abode um, and his clan. In uh, the, the Enki clan uh, settled in Egypt, in Africa, uh, from Egypt southwards. And there was an extent of Enlil's uh, troops all the way up to, sorry, uh, children all the way into what we know as Canaan. Um, what is today basically Israel in the area around, uh, you know, uh, Syria in the, in the north and Lebanon, um, but the area adjacent to Egypt. And Egypt, again, that, that, that area around Jerusalem and the Sinai Peninsula being the crossing between the two empires, and um, between the east and the west, and between the north and the south um, in that general area. And this area, again, the crossing, the middle 
Jerusalem in the north and Sinai in the south were a big focus for a lot of the campaigns for the attempt to seize control and to rule. So the big players that we've been speaking about, the ones that we should more or less remember uh, at this point, um, really and truly, apart from the uh, you know the father gods Enki and Enlil, uh, Marduk is going to be our main focus in this final part, and uh, again, uh, sorry, opposite Marduk to a certain degree are Enlil's children, and this rivalry has been going on for quite some time now. It's uh, it was Inanna who also fought against him, um, and then indeed attacked uh, Enlil's own city, and Ninurta um, was sent to defend it, and so the main gods who have been really uh, trying to seize control more forcefully were Inanna and Marduk, and now that Inanna has failed, she seems to have taken a step back and accepted, and we'll see Marduk is still in exile. So, that's a quick recap. If you have any questions about anything, please let me know, but I think we can continue forward. So, we ended last week's episode with the death of the great king and leader uh, Urnamu, who really... Things were going a little too good for it to stay that way for too long. Um, no, but an unfortunate and indeed uh, a very uh, disastrous death, um, which was unaccepted and people had a very hard time uh, dealing with, uh, not understanding how he could be the beloved of the gods and be deserving of such a shameful death. Um, his, uh, the following king, his uh, next in line, was a king named Shulgi, which uh, we won't go into the name right now. Um, but he was a very different kind. Although he was trying to sort of, you know, clean up the mess as it was, he uh, left, one of his first acts was to go and visit all of the different um, parts of the empire, all of the colonies, all of the leaders and rulers uh, around um, the empire, and to attempt to re-establish peaceful relations and trading relations. And so Shulgi again came from Ur. Um, after the Akkadian Empire was uh, sort of dismantled, um, Ur returned to be, well, became again the capital and the uh, central uh, city um, in, the, in Sumer. And so Shulgi began visiting all of the leaders in beginning in the north, in Lebanon and Adad's area, and moving down south, obviously, in Tilmun, the uh, area of Ninharsag, and offering the gods their uh, sacrifices, and really paying, paying tribute to all of the different gods and various gods, and, um, sorry, and establishing relationships with the leaders. And indeed, he ca uh, gave quite a few of his daughters to various leaders in order to uh, establish these relationships, as one did back then. Now, this was acceptable, and it seemed to be working pretty well, in fact. Oh, sound photo, uh, Soundwave's photo, I'm very good to see you here again. Thank you for joining. We're just talking about the continuation of Ur, the city in Sumer. And uh, Shulgi, the uh, ruling king, succeeded in bringing this era of relative uh, peace and establishing trades, um, even with uh, the Hindu Valley and with uh, Egypt, and he seemed to really be going along well, which might be why, um, as he reached... Oh, 
sorry, as he reached an older age, he began to uh, sort of praise himself more and more and feel that he deserved more, uh, let's say, attention and praise that perhaps was worthy. And so following this, towards his death, the kingdom started to really crumble again and fall apart. This was again uh, Ur. And at this point, um, these were actually really coming to be the last years of Ur in Sumer. And interesting little side note, there's a very, um, a very interesting study that was made. I actually can't remember the name of the author right now. It wasn't Babbage, but it was something like that. He was an English general and he wrote a book about the life cycles of empires and describing the empires, all empires in history, as going through the same six stages in their life cycle. Uh, not important now which, but the end was always this decadence and crumbling and disintegration, usually from uh, an empire that has been so rich and successful that it sort of has taken away a lot of that strength that seemed to have supported before. And this certainly seems to be an apt description for what uh, happens to Ur in this point in time. So, once again, following the Akkadian Empire crumbling and the wars between them, um, Ur seems to be in a chaotic state. And at this point, um, it's very interesting because we have one of those curious crossovers. Ah, thank you, patience. Oh, no, no, yeah, yeah, back at, sorry, Babbage is from computer science. It wasn't Babbage. It was something similar. You know what? Remind me in the end of the show and I'll check it out. Look at uh, the, the life cycle of empires. I can't remember exactly the title, but I'll get back to it. Anyway, at this point in the story, we actually have to introduce a new character whom I'm sure all of you have heard of, but he's an interesting addition. And this, as some of you watching the stream may have uh, worked out, <laughs> is uh, Abraham. Now, Abraham, as we all know, was a very famous figure in the Old Testament, was in fact the uh, forefather, the forefather of both the Jewish na uh, nation and, and the whole biblical story that um, the Jews perceive of as being their lineage begins with Abraham. Before Abraham, whether it was Noah or uh, Shem, the root of the term Semitic, um, he is actually, all of those were not considered Jewish. They were obviously the forefathers, they were the ancestors, but the first, first father of the Hebrew people, of the Jews as we know, was Abraham. Uh, how many sons did Abraham have? Uh, well, I will say that according to the Bible, he had two sons, um, Ishmael, uh, was it the name Ishmael? I think so. <laughs> and uh, Isaac, Yitzchak, in uh, the Bible. But he actually had his first son when he was around 90-something, 90, 90 if I'm not mistaken. Um, and so we're going to actually retrace his character further back in history. Now, as I was uh, researching this episode and deciding what to talk about, um, I had to make a crucial decision, as I've said so many times, and I apologize for repeating myself, but if you're hearing this episode as the first one ever, you'll need to know that, once again, I decided to not include the vast majority of <laughs> the research that Sitchin has done um, uh, confirming Abraham's character. 
And so the question of who Abraham was, whether he was a historical figure at all, and if so, in what period, and um, any attempt to verify and to cross-reference his figure with other non-biblical sources has been uh, difficult, let's just say. And for various reasons, if you're at all interested in this, I'll just say that the... um, there was a very interesting German scholar who, before the Second World War, was um, elaborating on the research on Abraham, and he had a very interesting theory. But uh, the Second World War happened, and as most of the world decided that uh, researching these historical, you know, figures were uh, not as important, and so it was sort of just forgotten. The theory, um, I think, it sounds like, until Sitchin picked up on it and began uh, researching, and so. As Sitchin goes through in the book, he is listing all of the various researchers who came before, both the uh, the hypotheses that he agrees with and the ones he doesn't and what is accepted by mainstream. And so, if you're interested in Abraham's character or biblical research in general, please go and read the book. It's the original and he has a lot more information than what I'm going to give here. This is going to be a very short, uh, condensed version of that. And the reason for that is, as usual, I am not here to convince and I'm not here to show my work, as it were. Um, I finished with that in high school. I'm here to tell you a story. And so, who is Abraham? What is this this character that we all have heard of? Now, I, uh, I completely understand that he is a less important figure, I think, in mainstream Christianity. He's um, not spoken of as much, although we all know him and we know the name. Um, the image, when I was again looking <laughs> looking just for a picture or just seeing, the image that I always had of Abraham and the image I think that most people have is one of these, well, Jewish forefathers, Jewish ancestors. Uh, you know, fatherly figure, shepherd, probably, you know, uh, sort of quiet, mild, you know, uh, uh, nomad, like... This is the sort of image I think that most of us conjure up, sandals and a long toga or whatever they were wearing back then. Um, But to this I will say that Sitchin's image is one that is rather different from that, and it seems to be backed up by the Bible a lot more. And so we're going to get into that very quickly, but before I continue, I've noticed myself, I've caught myself using this twice, and I should really clear this up. What is the difference between Jewish and Hebrew? for example. Why do we have these two terms and is there a difference at all? Well, it'll be, I'm just going to clear this up before we continue so that you know when I say Jewish or Hebrew. Uh, All of the Jews accept Abraham as their Jewish forefather. Yes. Uh, So it's confusing and he is obviously also the father of the Hebrews. So the root of the word uh, Jew, Jewish, is actually from uh, Judea, Judah, who was one of Jacob's sons, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, but more importantly, the or one of the two kingdoms in Israel in uh, that ruled um, over part of the land and became one of the more famous uh, kingdoms. And though, so the people, the Israelis, the Israelites, as it were, who came out of uh, Judea were called Jews, Judeans, uh, in Hebrew, Yehudi, from Yehuda. And the ending, if you'll notice, um, of the term uh, for, for Jews is Yehudi. The ending in Hebrew of E implies uh, of, of that place. 
Kna'ani um, is from Kna'an, Shumari or Shinari is from Suma or Shin'al, etc., etc. So, that's Jew in general. What is Hebrew? Well, Hebrew is a much older term. Uh, in fact, the language was there uh, before uh, the Jews, as it were, because Hebrew is one of the Semitic languages that came out. And it's, it is a rather ancient language as well. Now, this term actually comes from a very curious word that I think we're going to go into right now, uh, before we continue. I actually was planning to get into this a bit later, but I think it, it suits here now more so. So, what I'm going to attempt to do, and this, uh, this may not work, but I hope it will, is I'm going to try again to share a picture with you uh, on Discord. So, for those who are watching in chat, the last time that I tried this, uh, it didn't actually work. So, I am, sorry, not in chat, but in the video version. And so because of that, this time, I'm actually going to try and put it up on the video. So that will be the thing. And then uh, we're going to share it in chat as well. So just give me one second <laughs> to get the uh, picture that I'm referring to. Okay. So let's put it up first in chat. One moment, please. I'm sorry about this. Okay. Let me know that that worked. Okay. And in the OBS. Okay. So, we're going to go through this very quickly, and we're going to see uh, the meaning of it. And I'm going to go back and explain it afterwards, and we're going to go into a bit, bit on, a bit more depth. But in Sitchin's words, the term Ibri, which is the original from Hebrew, um, by which Abraham and his family identified themselves, clearly stemmed from Ebel. Okay? So let's talk a little bit about Ebel. He was the father of Peleg. And the term uh, Ebel, or Ebel in, uh, in, uh, in Sumerian, uh, Ebel in Hebrew means to cross or to pass, uh, to go to the other side, as it were. It also means to go towards. But here in the root, in the uh, historical root, it was to cross, to go to the other side. Now, in the time that most of the mainstream uh, researchers were looking into this, they were looking for Abraham in a different timeline in Sitchin. They were looking for him far uh, further in the future. And because of this, and because of Abraham's Semitic um, ancestry, as it were, roots, they assumed him to be of a different language group from the Semitic uh, language groups. And so they were searching for the connection with Ebel from a different language, part of the, uh, one of the terms that was Hapiru, which was meant to be um, one of the earlier words that led to uh, Hebrew. Um, but again, that was from the Western part, Western Asia. And I'll continue the quote, quote now. Instead of seeking the meaning of the epithet in the Hapiru notions in Western Asia, it is our conviction, Sitchin, that the answer is to be found in the Sumerian origins and the Sumerian language of Abraham and his ancestors. Then a new solution emerges with startling simplicity. So as we've done time and time again in the show, we will once again look for the philological uh, roots and... Uh, um, the origin, in order for us to understand a bit better. The biblical suffix e, uh, the pronunciation e, i, when applied to a person meant a native of. By the way, like uh, 
uh, Da Vinci, for example, I think. In other languages, they also have. Gileadi meant a native of Gilead, and so on. Likewise, Ibri meant a native of a place called Crossing. As we said, Ebel, Ebel Crossing. And that precisely was the Sumerian name for Nippur. Ni-Ib-Ru, the crossing place, the place where the pre-diluvial grids crisscrossed each other, the original navel of the earth, the olden mission control center. So, what does that mean for us? Well, according to Sitchin, um, and this is his claim, Abraham was in fact not just of uh, Semitic origin, but he was Sumerian to begin with. And not just any Sumerian, but he came from, oops, sorry about that, he came from the sacred city of Nippur. Now, we've mentioned Nippur before, and for those who uh, don't uh, remember or don't recall, Nippur was the mission control center for the cities in Sumer, and in fact, it was the religious center. And so, Sitchin is very clear that Nippur was never a capital, was never the uh, controlling um, city of the nation. It was always the religious center. This was the place where people were um, tasked with communicating with the gods and indeed translating or interpreting or indeed passing on the message of the gods to the people. Now this, well, <laughs> this might sound not very interesting to some of you who are less uh, emotionally tied to Abraham. For me personally, um, when I first heard of this, first discovered that this father figure of Judaism, whom the Bible mentions where he came from, but doesn't, uh, um, I'll explain, but um, the later interpretations of the rabbis never come anywhere near it and don't really seem to care about those roots and where he was. And so after hearing Sitchin's uh, description, I would like to just very quickly mention, because for me it was important when I was um, researching this again and going through it, I saw that I wanted to look at what other rabbis, Jewish rabbis, modern day from today, um, rabbis interpret and how they uh, read into this. And so we're going to actually go into it further later on, but the general acceptance of all of this was that Abraham was the son of what's known as an idol worshipper. And so the Bible is very clear that Abraham's father was some form of an important uh, uh, religious figure in a, a, a different, in an idol worshipping religion. And that's all the Bible says. Now, since that isn't really enough, the rabbis have come along and offered a, uh, a tale, I think they call it an allegory, which is very common in Judaism, which is there to explain what's uh, unspoken from the truths of the Bible. And in it, they tell the story of how Abraham came and saw all of his father's statues and he smashed all of them and he heard the voice of God telling him that God was the creator. And this whole long tale, which is just this is what I grew up on. I grew up on Abraham going out alone and was the first person to ever ask who created the universe. And he saw the sun and he said, oh, uh, no, he saw the moon. And he said, wow, the moon is there every night. Uh, uh, you know, it must be the ruler. And then he saw the sun and he said, oh, the sun is even more powerful. That must be the ruler. And then he saw them switching and he thought, ah, oh, there must be something above. And God came to him and said, I am the creator. That's the story that I grew up on. That's the story that every religious 
child grows up on who Abraham was, the first Jew, uh, Hebrew, to ever stand up to a different God and uh, claim to want to search for deeper meaning for a, a different uh, God. And it's, it's very convincing when you're quite young. But reading Sitchin's description and indeed uh, revisiting the biblical terminology really puts it onto a very, very different light. And so let us continue. Let's see. 11.30. Ooh, we're not going to get microphone. Okay. I'm sorry. I think <laughs> I was hoping we would get through a bit more. We're going to carry on with Abraham a little bit, and then we're going to end on something different. So according to Sitchin, Abraham, in fact, was uh, born in uh, Sumer, and he indeed was born in Nippur. Now, Sitchin offers a very nice uh, timeline, which uh, maybe I'll, I'll put up afterwards. Actually, I don't have a picture of it, but um, he basically is uh, combining now Abraham's timeline from the Bible with the various stories and histories of uh, Sumer and Akkad that we've been talking about. And so that's what we're going to go over now. So, oopa, sorry about that. Let me just, one moment. Excuse me, I don't know why my throat is a bit bothersome. Uh, oh, hang on. Before we continue, I can see that there's been chat that I've missed. No, I haven't. What was? Oh, it was before, sorry. Wonder if Hebrew and Farsi stem from the same language. In general, they're both Semitic, but Farsi is very early on, took a very different uh, turn because it's very different from Arabic. But they do share the same origin back then, from what I know. Um, okay, if there's anything, let me know in chat. Otherwise, I will continue. So, Abraham comes from a long line of uh, Sumerian important figures. And in fact, the Bible lists his different forefathers as it has done from Adam going through the ages, which again might seem um, both boring and unimportant. And reading it as a child is like just a list of empty names. But if we research the names and see the meaning that was given to each name, we can actually glean a lot of information. And so if we just go over some of the uh, ancestors, one of his ancestors was called uh, Shelach, which is um, the term for sword. And this was around the time of the wars when uh, the Akkadian Empire was expanding. Um, one of the next sons was um, Peleg, which is the root of division, to divide. And he was born in the time when the Akkadian and Ur uh, empires were at war and were uh, divided amongst them. And so Sitchin really does this amazing, amazing work of tracing these different names and meanings and mapping it. But we'll jump forward to Abraham. Abraham. So Abraham's father was named Terach, Terach, and he was a high priest in Nippur. And they were obviously of status. Um, in fact, we learn this, that Abraham was uh, royalty. We'll see that later. So, as we spoke of, Ur-Namu uh, became king of Ur, and he was a very successful leader. He was put there intentionally. Following that, uh, Ur-Namu was, for the first time, actually given uh, guardianship of Nippur. There was a sort of attempt to uh, heal the divide, as it were, and to bring the two cities closer together. And in this is a theory that Sitchin poses, in an attempt to, uh, as it were, bridge this gap, um, Terach and his family move to Ur. 
Now, in the Bible, if you'll know, most of us who've heard of Abraham know that he came from Ur, Ur Kasdim, um, which was the big biblical place. Um, and it's, it's, um, it's assumed that that was his birthplace, that that's where he was from. But in fact, we see here that he was born in Nepal. We're not sure what age or how old. Uh, it does actually say um, 10, at the age of 10. He moved from Nepal to Ur. So when he was only still a, a child. And he grew up indeed in Ur. Now, after uh, Ur Namu dies, Shulgi, as we said in the beginning, uh, ascends to the throne. And at this point, there is a change of the guard. There is a shift and a, a, a bit of a chaotic time. And because of this, uh, Terach and his family decide once again to leave Ur. But this time they actually go, um, don't go back to Nippur, they go to a place called Haran. Now, Haran is again one of those very famous places. It was um, west of Ur. Um, in fact, if you're looking at the map, it was basically towards Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula, the crossing, that area there. And in fact, um, Abraham, Abraham stays in Haran for, in Haran, sorry, for, for many, many years, for decades. Now, the Bible glosses over this period without sharing too much information. But thanks to Sitchin's work, he has uncovered that during his time there, Abraham not only established many diplomatic uh, relationships, but in fact became very close with the uh, Hittiti, Hittite, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, Hittim, I'll just say the Hebrew. And uh, for those who remember, the Hittites, Hittiti, were a, a military uh, nation. They were peaceful when necessary and they weren't bloodthirsty, but they were excellent, um, both strategists, generals and fighters, and uh, the, their enemies around certainly feared them and would not attack them. And so Abraham, Abraham was close to them uh, geographically, and it is assumed that he came into contact, and in fact there were evidence showing that he was uh, to some extent learning from them as well, and uh, improving his military, both strategy and uh, skills and experience. And in fact, uh, during the time there, Abraham... Uh, uh, sort of, not exactly, but gains more wealth and more people and soldiers uh, to be under him, as it were. Now, at this point, um, there's a few more... Okay, 11.36. I don't want to go into too much before, because we'll have time. Yeah. Okay. So, Abraham was born in Nepal. He left Nepal at the age of 10 to live in Ur, and as a, as a priest... Um, part of the priestly family, and he was ordained under the uh, gods of Ur, the god of Ur. And from there, he moved to Haran, uh, continuing his uh, allegiance to the same gods, but, uh, as it were, setting up this place away from home. So, we will... Okay, we're going to leave it at that for now. Next week, we're going to continue with Abraham's story because it is very relevant to uh, where we are in the story in general, and we're going to see how all this ties together, I promise. For now, there is something else that I'd like to talk about as well, and I want to have time for it before we end. Oh my gosh, I was expecting us to go through so much more. Okay. Um, 
what I want to talk about now is specifically um, sort of regarding this narrativist tale and what we're entering now. So again, if you have any questions in chat about anything, let me know. As for now, I will continue. We've been talking about narrative and about uh, Sitchin's story and a lot of it may be, uh, I think, hard to swallow, hard to accept, even maybe hard to grasp in the beginning since it's very different information about something that we don't know much about to begin with. You know, I'm not sure how many people would describe uh, Akkad or, or can name any Sumerian kings. Um, and be, because of this, I think it's sometimes easy to sort of get lost in this uh, tale and perhaps even, as people have told me, uh, not really see the importance, the relevance of learning these new things. And so that's what I wanted to talk a little bit about now. Um, in the following episodes, I'm, I've said this a few times, but we are definitely nearing the end of uh, Sitchin's narrative. And it's because of that I think that's important uh, to remember why we're, why we're learning all of this, or why I'm talking about this, I should say. <laughs> so I actually want to talk about two uh, YouTube channels that I became aware of recently as a side anecdote uh, to what I usually talk about, and I hope it will all tie in in the end. The first one is called The Art of Story, and this is a YouTube channel uh, really directed towards uh, script writing or storytelling in general, both novels and books. Um, the, the presenter, as it were, is uh, it's a phenomenal channel. If you're interested in screenwriting and if you're interested in storytelling in general, go check it out, The Art of Story. I highly recommend it. Very high production value. As I was watching this, um, he was talking about a concept that I am quite familiar with and I think you all are as well. It's something I refer to as the postmodern paradox or crisis. And this is the notion that um, if once in our not-so-distant history there used to be sort of, you know, truth, objective truth, facts, this is, you know, what is, and that's it. With postmodernism, we have sort of had to realize that actually the truth has many faces, every person has their own truth, truth can change over time, and it's this search of the absolute truth is uh, an impossible one. Now, although I'm aware of this both uh, philosophical issue and indeed a, 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 a sort of moral issue to some degree, I think the most crucial for me, let's see, the most crucial perspective to study this through is the perspective of storytelling, of, um, ah, wonderful, thank you, patient zero, what would I do without you, of narratives. Because for some reason, if we talk about uh, absolute objective truths versus versus uh, you know relative truths. We hold one to be um, more important than the other, more powerful than the other, uh, hierarchically higher than the other. If someone has an objective truth, an objective fact, then that uh, precedes any subjective experience that we might have. Until we come to stories. And in stories, we have this very clear, uh, they call it contract, between the participant, the viewer, and the artist, whereby there is a willful suspension of disbelief. Now, why would we need that? I mean, uh, if we're about objective truth, if we're about studying reality and learning what the facts are, then why would we willfully suspend 
our disbelief of something that clearly isn't true. And in fact, oh, Claybone, good to have you. And oh, thank you so much. Well, it's, it's whatever you can come and join is wonderful. We're just talking about uh, storytelling in general and narratives. And it's it's sort of something we don't really think about because obviously we're there to enjoy the film and it doesn't matter that this is uh, VFX or the actors are actually pretending because we're there to experience and to be entertained. But that's not all stories are there for. And in fact, in the YouTube channel, he talks about story as being a ritual to a certain degree. This is the real uh, changing or reaffirming of beliefs, of morality, of really the whole view of the world. And I don't know about you, I assume uh, at least some of you will relate, but for me, some of the big important films, movies that I've watched in my life have changed. Me as a person have changed my behavior, my uh, thought pattern in a very uh, quote-unquote realistic way. And so it seems that storytelling and narratives offer us a very unique glance into a world where, although it is not objective truth, in fact, it's the opposite, it's completely fictional, it is made up from nothing. If we're talking about a book, then even, you know, besides the words on a page or, let's say, a computer screen, there is nothing real. Everything is going on in our interpretation and our personal, subjective, you know, warped, distorted view of what we're reading. And yet, it has a very real, visceral uh, effect on our experience, on our lives, on reality. And this is really the point that I'm trying to make with, I mean, with this YouTube channel, it's worth checking just to see him explain it all a lot better than I am doing now, but I think it's a very important lesson, this lesson of my truth, my personal subjective truth, is uh, equally valid as someone else's and vice versa. And not only that, but every truth that I hold is subjective. There are no objective truths, truly objective. And this is a very difficult notion for me to accept. I'm personally a rather, uh, I think today I'm less argumentative, but I'm certainly, I, I enjoy a good debate, a good discussion. I firmly believe everything I say. I firmly hold that my view is not only the best and healthiest, but it would benefit other people if they joined it. And I think this is a very common notion. I think that most people feel that what they're doing is universal as opposed to individual. And that's why I want to tell you about this other uh, YouTube channel that I recently found. I think I saw them before as well, but uh, I've sort of recently got into them. They're called Epic Rap Battles of History, the channel. And uh, I'm sure none of you know where I'm going with this, but don't worry, I promise it will connect in the end. Epic Rap Battles of History is a, again, very high production uh, comedy rap, well, rap battle between different uh, famous uh, figures um, of history, both fictional and real. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very wacky, I'd say, show, a very wacky representation. Um, it's very, very well researched in terms of the history and the facts that they're talking about. I, I was very much impressed. It's a very you know, high quality production and uh, the work that they put into it. And it's very silly and very funny, as it were. So 
the other day, I can't remember when it was, I was watching the rap battle between Edison and Tesla, Nikolai Tesla. And just in case there is anyone uh, whom I've lost, uh, um, well, Thomas Edison was, quote-unquote, an inventor. Ah, thank you, patience there. I was waiting this time. Um, Thomas Edison was an inventor, and he has uh, got a lot of patents, but his MO seemed to have been quite clearly um, basically stealing or buying patents from other inventors who were usually working under him and not giving them any of the credit or money and taking it all for himself. Never mind, I won't go into any kind of <laughs> subjective, but um, that is something that I think most people agree on. Notice how I'm doing it again, yeah. So, versus uh, Nikolai Tesla, uh, regardless of his personal being and personality and who he was, he is credited with uh, many different patents, many different inventions, and again, a lot of them were offered for free uh, without charging. Those are the two figures. I'm hoping that's enough for most people and you know what I'm talking about. Now, me personally, I'm a, a, a very, very big uh, fan, isn't quite the word I need, but like admirer of Nikolai Tesla. Um, I've read his biography and I've read a lot about him and I've read some uh, also, you know, conspiracy, uh, conspiratory uh, writings about his life and what he did or what was done to him, etc., etc. Fascinating figure, very mysterious, uh, very spiritual, had very uh, meaningful experiences, traumatic but meaningful as a child. And so I saw this battle, uh, the video between Thomas Edison and Nikolai Tesla, who were to a certain degree rivals, although they started out working together. And I thought, this is a joke. This is a joke. How could anyone defend Thomas Edison? If you're going to have a rap battle, you've got to find something you can sort of you know, make fun of or battle the other side with. Um, it's usually one of two ways. Either you put down the other one or you put yourself up. Can you do that? But you, as it were, praise yourself. Um, and I really, before the battle started, I couldn't perceive how Edison was going to do it. And then uh, the battle began, and if you want to watch it, go and check it out. But I'll basically say that Thomas Edison, um, I agreed with everything he said. And that really surprised me, because normally when we have a different perspective, as it were, of uh, someone, a different thought of someone, we're going to find that we disagree on what we're saying. And yet here, my perception was clearly that Thomas Edison was the bad guy, and Nikola Tesla was the good guy. Um, and yet, I couldn't find anything that I didn't agree with Edison on. And so, the reason for this was that Thomas Edison was not arguing the same points. So yes, uh, Thomas Edison, you know, stole the ideas from Nikolai Tesla and made a lot of money with them. That was his, uh, Edison's claim to praise himself. And the reason I bring that up is because in that moment, I hope I'll be able to, <laughs> to transfer it to you, but I had this epiphany, those moments of like, those aha moments where I suddenly saw that it wasn't a shift in perception necessarily or change of facts, whether he did steal or didn't steal, whether it was legal or illegal. It was a shift in um, moral values, as it were. Oh, thanks, Claiborne. Have a good one, too. See you next uh, next time, hopefully. Um, it is that for Edison, stealing 
you know, uh, fooling, managing to trick a fellow scientist into giving him patents that he can then both mass produce and make money off of is morally an acceptable thing. And it's something that is uh, sought after, that should be um, the goal of people. And so for Edison, Nikola Tesla was a, a, a failure. A failure not because he wasn't a genius, he was definitely a genius, but he was a failure in business. And for Thomas Edison, business and profiteering was morally more valuable than whatever, scientific ingenuity or indeed a, a sense of camaraderie in attempting to uh, give people, as it were, uh, you know, things for free. And I hope I managed to <laughs> transfer it. Go and watch the battle afterwards and check it out if you want. But for me, that was a real shift in understanding that it's not just disagreeing and saying you did that, but the art of story talks about it a lot. The moral values that we place are actually guiding all of these decisions that come later and all of our perceptions. So whether he did this thing or didn't do this thing is not actually directly going to influence whether he is a good or bad person. It's more that first I think he is a good or bad person and then through that prism I am judging what he does. And so, if I'll wrap this all up right now, I hope I didn't lose too many of you to that uh, little rant, but um, this, I think, is very important for what we're talking about. These stories, who Abraham was, I, there are many, many different researchers with different narratives and all of them competing. And it is important, I think, to research. Um, there is obviously a reason that I chose to present Sitchin's work and not anyone else uh, for that matter and I do think that Sitchin's narrative is an important one but I try to never forget that it is always a narrative and this narrative has something to teach us even if and I'm saying if because I don't think so but even if it isn't true even if in fact it is you know quote-unquote made up or distorted or got the dates wrong or whatever it may be the story that arises from it, the narrative that Sitchin has developed, the things that they can teach us about ourselves, about the world, about the way we interact, and indeed about the systems of governments, of, govern, of government and governance that are to a certain degree and now more than ever controlling our lives, um, they can really help us to explore those mechanisms, to research and to discover, I think, more about the history, how they were created, and how we got to where we are today, uh, more or less. Okay, how are we doing for time? Oh, wow, excellent, not bad. Um, okay, let me just have a quick look at chat and see, oh, who uh, uploaded Patient Zero? Uh, he's gone into subjective. Oh, nice, I will check it out afterwards. Thank you very much. Atheism versus Luciferianism, interesting. I don't think I've heard of him. Um, banned video, <laughs> whenever there's a thing. Um, oh, let me read F. Scott Fitzgerald. The test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. I believe, although I definitely could be mistaken, I believe that was originally uh, Plato, if I'm not mistaken. 
check it out. But uh, I, I think possibly uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald quoted him as well. But I believe that it was Plato who originally is um, given the credit for coining that term. But it's a great quote nonetheless. In fact, I quoted it just the other day because, yeah, it's something we don't see very often. In fact, we see quite the opposite. That there are two opposing opinions and you must be lumped into one. You can't be, you know, an aggressive woman or a gentleman. You can't be, uh, well, I'm not going to say <laughs> any of the other cliches because I realize that's going to sound very bad with the examples, but you get the point. If you are X, Y, or Z, that means I know this, that, and that about you, and it's always fitting into those two. So, uh, uh, hooray for schizophrenics, right? Teaching us a thing or two about holding opposing views at the same time. Uh, no, I'm joking. Okay, cliches are great. In fact, the Art of Story said that cliches are truths that have been worn, oh, I can't remember it now, but sort of that have been overused to the point where they lack the emotional impact. Um, and so it's not that they're not true, it's that we don't learn from them because we are too used to them and blind to them. Anyway, interesting channel. Okay, with the few minutes, uh, Rondon, remind me, I'm so sorry, when do we end exactly, on what second? Type it up so I can see before it's time to go. Um, I do want to quickly just present, for those who are interested, for those who want to know what I'm hoping to cover in the next episode. I have to tell you, we went through about a third of what I had planned for this episode. Um, so we'll see how much we get to next. Actually, no, we'll be okay. Um, oh, fi five seconds too? That's when we end. Ah, yes, okay, 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 wonderful. So, this week we basically started presenting a little bit of who uh, Abraham was, is, and we will continue with that, but we will continue the paralleling of his story with the narrative that we've, that we've been following. Now, there is a reason that I'm talking about Abraham, and that is that he played a crucial role in, uh, in the events that come. Um, and so, we're going to talk next week about a little bit more about his origin, uh, the Sumerian origin, and the meaning of the name Abraham, and indeed um, the Jewish calendar as well, which uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to all of that next episode. Hopefully, um, if we make it, we will actually continue with uh, Marduk re-entering the picture, and what that leads to as well. And so... I'll be honest, I'm not sure how much of this we will be able to get to. No, I hope we will be able to. I was I was thinking that maybe next episode would be the last one on Sitchin, but it uh, now that I'm having another look, I don't think it's going to be next episode. So we'll see. But nonetheless, uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about Abraham and his uh, life and what he was doing in that time, and indeed his interactions with the various gods of the area. Specifically, in fact, if this is of, at all of any interest to you, uh, we're going to be talking about the one of the least famous wars, I think, least famous wars in all the Bible, um, which, uh, whatever reason, I think you have to be quite um, religious and knowledgeable to really know about it. No, relatively speaking. It's a war between four gods on one side and, uh, god, sorry, four human kings on one side and five human kings on the other. Uh, it's in Genesis, it involves Abraham, and so if you're interested in reading up on it about, it's uh, Genesis chapter 14, you'd it if I'm not mistaken. Um, so uh, you can read up about Jericho. 
it's uh, that area. It's the area of Jericho. It's not the it's not the famous war of the the Battle of Jericho and whatever. Jericho was a very very uh, ancient place, but um, it's it's a very it's a very uh, un, unfamiliar unknown. I don't know how to say it. Uh, war, and the reason is it's a very very bizarre war. First of all, it isn't uh, fought by the Hebrews, and although Abraham part, uh, takes part in the war. He is clearly not of either side, and we see this later. And it's 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 just very confusing to understand why, with the Bible being so careful to not waste any of the words and not, you know, uh, 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 waste uh, any of the space on text. It's it's this very known notion in the Bible that every word is meticulously chosen and specifically uh, used for its meaning, and there's no redundant letter in the whole of the uh, Old Testament, that's the notion. And then there's this war between different kings, nine different kings from different empires who were around Abraham, and they, uh, he joined in the fighting, but he wasn't part of it. And it's not really clear what uh, he was doing there, once again, until Sitchin comes in to uh, save the day, <laughs> as it were. Um, so I'm hoping we will get to that. It's actually a pretty big... Uh, part of the story, and uh, hopefully we will get to that. That I think, if we make, if we manage to make it all the way through, that will be the end of the next episode. Again, I can't promise, but uh, we'll see how we do. Okay, um, let me have a look. Wonderful. So I think that's just about it from me. Uh, thank you all so much for joining. Those who are still in chat, uh, crimson clad, and. Hive, oh, HiveQA, I didn't see you join. Thank you, Lax. Thank you very much for joining. Patient Zero, Rondon, Revised Sociology. It's wonderful, as always, to see you all. I have been Olev. This has been The Discomfort Zone. And I hope very much to see you uh, in the episode next week. Until then, that's all from me. Have a great one. Oh.